Welcome to episode four of I Wish I Would Have Learned. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Sonny Magana. Dr. Magana is an Oxford research scholar, award-winning educational leader, best-selling author, and musician. He is highly sought after keynote speaker, educational consultant, and executive coach. Drawing inspiration from his love of rock and roll music and innovative teaching and learning, Sonny's latest book, Disruptive Classroom Technology, a framework for innovation in education, has become a must-read for modern educators and leaders. Dr. Magana is a recipient of the prestigious Milken Family Foundation National Educator Award, the Governor's Commendation for Educational Excellence, and the Global Innovative Leadership Award from EdTech Digest. Sonny holds a Bachelor's of Science degree from Stockton University, a Master's of Education degree from City University, an Educational Administration endorsement, and a Doctorate in Educational Leadership from Seattle University. Welcome, Dr. Sonny McDonald. Magania, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I just wanted to lead off with a, a, just a simple question. If you could uh, just tell us a little about yourself and your background, wh who you are, and what you're all about. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, please call me Sonny. Uh, all, all my friends call me Sonny. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a simple teacher. I was a biology teacher uh, and was interested in biology as a very young kid and became a systems biologist. So actually, before I, I went into education, I studied ecosystems. So I was trained as a, an observer uh, and data keeper of uh, complex organizational systems in South Jersey, where I'm from. So I've always been interested in looking at the holistic view of an organization or a system, and I've kind of applied my training as a systems biologist to the ecosystem of schools, and have been really fortunate in that I started teaching when technology first made its way into schools in 1983, I actually did my very first research study on the impact of technology on student wow. engagement. And, the, and it was really funny because the, uh, uh, the technology we were using was the Apple IIe computer and a software program called the Oregon Trail. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, and I've just been really curious about the intersection between pedagogy, technology, and learning. What are, what's the relationship and how can that relationship be expanded in such a way that learning gains as much value as possible from the introduction of technology? And the way I phrase that question is, what is it that technology can allow students to do well or uh, to, to, to be able to do at all that if the technology was not available, uh, students wouldn't do as well or have uh, the same kind of uh, capacity? Uh, and uh, that's been a, a really interesting journey for the past 37 years. Uh, and now I, I write about my experiences. I, I, I work as a consultant and uh, author, uh, researcher, uh, continuing to, to press this idea that it's the, it's the learning that we should be focusing on with technology, not just the technology and not just the teaching with technology, but the learning with technology. So Dr. Magania, let me ask you this, a little different type of question, but who inspires you? Well, you know, I have to say the, the very first people that inspired me to go into education were my, my teachers. I had uh, uh, some fabulous teachers that helped 
me see potential within myself that I didn't see without their guidance. They illuminated some um, areas of interest and passion that I had. Uh, I'm also inspired by my students. I, I've learned, I, I apologize to my students still, still to this day on Facebook. I said, look, I'm really sorry because I know I learned more from you than you learned from me. Uh, so I'm, I'm inspired by my students and inspired by the choices that they make and seeing them uh, improve the, their lot in life uh, and using education as a means rather than an end. But I'm also inspired by people like uh, my my friend and colleague uh, Robert Marzano, who's a, a, a somebody uh, who's a mentor for me. Without it, his his work absolutely inspires me. Uh, John Hattie's work uh, also is is very inspirational. Um, and so my my work really wouldn't I, I wouldn't be able to do what I do if not for people like uh, Marzano and Hattie and John Bransford and his his uh, wonderful work of course uh, John Dewey I'm inspired by all these people Paulo Freire I'm inspired by the, the wonderful pedagogy that he's uh, put forth a very very humanistic uh, approach but then in modern times obviously like right now in in this moment in this post-covid moment I'm inspired by teachers and leaders who are showing up every day doing the best they can in the most challenging circumstances anyone has ever experienced in their professional lives. So I'm inspired by the messages of hope and the resiliency and the, um, the investment in the future that current educators and leaders, uh, such as yourself, Robert and Isaac, <laughs> you're doing this every day. That's what inspires me and that's what keeps me going. My goal with my consultancy is to make the world a better place by improving the lives of students and teachers and leaders because you're showing up every day and doing this and so it's a privilege to do this I'm, I'm humbled to be of service wow um that's that's a great answer <laughs> um <laughs> okay what do i win <laughs> yeah you should win <laughs> something uh <laughs> your supply of rice aroni no, no, yeah I don't mean to diminish. I, this yeah. is how I feel. These, this is what sure. I value deeply, and it, it's uh, it's something that is with me every moment of every day. And I ask myself because early on, I I found what my wicked problem was. The wicked problem that matters to me is ensuring the highest quality education possible for every learner in these United States. And the wicked problem with technology is that we have an epidemic of low expectancy and low impact technologies across this great nation. That's the wicked problem that I'm most passionate about. And so I, I'm working to make the world a better place by highlighting the most reliable methods, tools, and processes for using technology to unlock the limitless potential it's inside every single learner and teacher in this great country. You know, um, the, the wicked problem, obviously part of uh, part of your book, and it's a big part of what uh, I've I know that you're all about. Um, and I think you hit it right on the head. Uh, there's too many of us that uh, use technology as the shiny thing. That's the cool thing, and I'm gonna. It's almost like it's standalone, like it's self-serving, but it, it's not deepening learning. It's not actually um, improving what we're doing. 
And um, if I, you know, there's a lot of educators that do uh, uh, are out there might be listening to our podcast. If I'm an educator that uh, has is coming to terms with the fact that I might be using technology as the shiny thing and the standalone thing, what what would you recommend as some some steps to take towards that using it as a, a deepening tool? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I think the first thing is to be aware of our perceptions of technology. Let me let me tell you a, a little bit story that that will uh, highlight this hopefully because i think whether or not we're aware of it many people harbor an implicit bias when it comes to technology so let me take you back to 1983 when i was i was a a graduate student at rutgers university when i first did the study on the impact of, of technology on student engagement and motivation it was really a motivational exercise and so uh, like like most young graduate students, we were kind of you know green and we didn't know what we were doing. We, we were asked by our professors to code students' engagement using a very simple but time-honored standard. <laughs> it's the Goldilocks approach. High, medium, low. Three, two, or one. Three is high engagement. Students look like they're attentive, looks like they're very motivated. Two is a moderate. They're not terribly motivated. They seem to be just going through the motions. One is they'd rather be anywhere else. So when we first started this exercise students were very interested in this technology because it was exciting it seemed very futuristic and it was kind of fun to solve the problem of getting a a wagon train across uh, the western states and try not to drown in the blue river or get snake bit or have an oxen break your leg or you know all the, the the trials that happen on the oregon trail and so we all coded student engagement is very high and we wanted to see high engagement we were uh laboring under a bias that this technology was so new it's so great it's the future that we had a value positive bias about technology we felt as novices that the application of this tool would automatically lead to a transformational approach to learning and so we brought that bias to our observation and we saw oh everyone's really high and then something confounding happened after uh just a a couple of weeks of observing in the classroom we saw something that we didn't expect engagement dropped off like the bottom fell out and the kids stopped getting interested in the game because they got bored and they started getting interested in like unplugging the keyboard and <laughs> unplugging the <laughs> the monitor and and throwing things at each other because uh, or, or playing the arcade game in uh, uh, the Oregon Trail and the reason why they did that is because their motivation and engagement was high not because of the inherent qualities of the experience but because of the novelty of it, because it was so new. And novelty is not sustainable. You can only have a one-time experience once. And once that uh, experience continues, the novelty wears off, engagement drops, and students became you know, m- more interested in distractive uh, experiences. So that was the first time I saw what I, what I call the uh, novelty Uh, conveyor belt that we get some new technology students interest and engagement gets really high because of the the novelty of the experience then the novelty wears off kids get distracted they get disengaged they get bored until some other new technology takes its place so that's really was was very interesting to me and i think so i tell people that 
we should be aware of how we perceive the use of technology itself first. That's the first step is to, un, is to surface our implicit bias. Some people have an implicit value, positive bias about technology that, you know, you just add technology and things are going to be great. Others harbor a value negative bias regarding technology and think that if we add technology, that's going to automatically um, have a, a detrimental effect on student learning and engagement motivation. Both of those are extremes. And so what I suggest is I take folks to this exercise and ask them to consider recalibrating their perspective on technology to a value neutral perspective. And that's the first step. Once we can go to a value neutral perspective, then we can understand this maxim. Technology has no inherent value in and of itself. It is inert. It is neutral. The value is made manifest in the manner in which it's used and by whom. Again, the statement you just made is obviously 100% correct here. You have established yourself as an educational pioneer, as an innovative leader in, uh, in your field. Why do you think your research is so pivotal as far as having an impact on our current practices in education? Well, I, I, I really appreciate you thinking that. Uh, I, I, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that I'm making as much of an effort as, or much as an impact as I'd like to. Uh, but then that's, <laughs> that's my personal bias, I guess. But I thank you for that gracious introduction. Um, I, I think why people are now coming to the realization that uh, my work is, um, is legit um, is that I've done the hard work. You know, I mean, this is four decades of exploring um, a very complicated question, uh, which is what, how can technology be most reliably used? But I've done it through the hard work of research, of evidence basis, you know, having an evidence base to drive my inquiry. Um, and so I think the legitimacy and the validity of the work, the fact that it's been peer reviewed, and here's a, here's a, a bit of a plug for Oxford University. Uh, my, um, all my research I, I was uh, peer reviewed by John Hattie himself and uh, Michael Fullan and other uh, uh, global educational scholars uh, who, who's, who are on a much higher level than me. But then it was uh, inducted into the University of Oxford's Research Encyclopedia for Education. And in, in our world, that's kind of a big deal when, you're, when your research is peer reviewed and, and that means the peer reviewers say, yeah, this is legit, his math is right, <laughs> his, his findings are are uh, legitimate, uh, they're valid, and uh, worthy of being uh, published in this uh, you know, pinnacle of research. Um, that, that it's, it's gratifying, but it's also, it's also humbling. What it means is that the, the, my, my little framework, this T3 framework, is the most reliable learning framework with technology that exists that's withstood the test of time. And so that's been um, uh, really, it's been quite gratifying, and, and, uh, uh, but it also gives me added responsibility because now I want to make sure that as many people as possible reframe their, how they think about their teaching, how they think about student learning, and how they think about the role that technology can play. And if I can have a hand in guiding the future direction of learning, that's a, that's an, uh, an, an incredible uh, uh, responsibility and also uh, very uh, gratifying as a simple teacher to, to have made an impact 
Uh, I don't know that I'm there yet, but I'm, I'm working real hard. About three years ago, uh, I was at a workshop, and this was when I became aware of your work, and I think I shared this story with you already. Uh, but uh, I was sitting there, and often as an administrator, you go to a bunch of workshops, and, and in all honesty, transparency, I was doing other stuff. And uh, <laughs> then uh, they uh, opened up the uh, webinar, and you came on. And uh, you started talking, and I, I like to call it my Scooby-Doo moment because, you know, I, I, I think I even made the sound, and I kind of snapped my head around and really started listening intently to your message and your research, and I was floored. I, I literally heard things clicking together in my brain. Uh, we, we've done a lot of work in our district, and very and we're all very proud of it, but it seemed like this was the missing piece that we had been looking for for so long. And so I was completely enamored. I remember coming back, I had one of our technology coaches and we uh, bought the book and we started reading and, and then we've kind of done a slow push out. Um, I, I was just amazed how thorough the research was, uh, was done, but at the same time, it just made sense. And I, I just kind of want, want your thoughts on that as why, why, why was something that, you know, you, you mentioned a complicated problem, why does it seem so obvious that as we work through this and we apply the strategies that you kind of uh, li uh, lined out for us in the book, why do you think that's, that's so, so simple as far as looking at it and making it work? Wow, that's, that's a great question. You, uh, I, I, you, you give me pause because I think, well, geez, what I'm, you're, you're feeding back to me the goal that I, I established for myself is that I wanted to take something very complex, find a solution that was as elegant as possible. And I, I mean, I know I'm failing at this, but I want to fail better. <laughs> you know, I want to I do it a little bit better each time. I'm not there yet. Uh, I, I kind of think that my, my best work is in front of me, not behind me. So I know I'm, I'm in the words of uh, the great <clears throat> Irish poet, playwright, Samuel Beckett. He said, you ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again fail again fail better and to me that really is uh, uh, a, a, a mantra you know just keep keep on going you know keep, stick with it and I tried to take something a solution that was as elegant as possible and make it as simple as possible without being simplistic and so I really appreciate what you said because you're, you're, you're telling me that I, that I may be you know nearer my mark I wanted to take something Without, without oversimplifying and making it too simplistic that it becomes meaningless, but make it simple to understand. And that, when if you can get into that space, then the work becomes self-evident. If you've never seen it before, on the first pass, it makes perfect sense. And that, that's a, that's a, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, uh, and what it comes down to is my work is unique in that I, I'm not as uh, put as put as much onus on teachers. I want to actually have teachers do less. I'm hoping I'm hearing a collective yay from teachers listening because I think teachers work too hard. We do too much. I want to help teachers work less, teach better, and improve learner outcomes by trusting students, giving students more responsibility, giving student voice greater amplification and allowing students to be more involved in planning for their own learning, expressing and representing their knowledge gain, and actively assessing and evaluating 
their own growth towards knowledge goals. And in a way, you know, when, when I, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my cyber school research because that, that, that was a, a pivotal moment for me uh, is that uh, we looked at, at uh, student responses and it was right in front of me the whole time. It's about the learning and the learners and the learning habits that learners acquire. And when I made that epiphany, like, ah, it's not so much about what teachers do. I mean, it is to a certain, to a certain extent, but it's more what students do as a result of what teachers do. So when teachers evince highly effective learning habits, students emulate them. So it's about the learner and the learning. Because you know, pedagogy is a two-sided coin. On one side is the teacher and the teaching. On the other side is the learner and the learning. And I was just fortunate that I made a, I made a, a left-hand turn <laughs> early in my career and said, I want to look at the learner and the learning with technology, not so much about the teacher and the teacher with technology. And that may be what what is part of the difference for which uh, from what differentiates my work from uh, others that's that that's out there that are out there you know what you just said really spoke to me about um you know teachers are working too darn hard out there um yeah. i used to i'm a, a huge advocate for technology but it's a two-pronged thing with technology i mean like what we're talking about here one it's got to deepen learning kids have to learn better yeah. and more and more efficiently uh, with technology but another thing I always used to say is that if technology is making your job harder, you're probably not using it right. Um, and I loved what you just said right there because our profession, uh, education, is uh, it's challenging, it's difficult, and uh, using this tool correctly can and can make it better. Because none of us got into this profession to become millionaires. We got into this profession because we just genuinely want to help kids, and this is a tool that we can do it. But uh, my question is actually, we always like to ask a question based off of a quote by by someone. Um, and I recently, oh, <laughs> we recent, I recently read an article, um, yeah, Education's Moonshot, uh, and it got me fired up, to be honest with you. Uh, President Kennedy's quote about going to the moon, uh, because mm. not because it's easy. And I would just like to give you a moment to explain to everybody who's listening you know, why that quote spoke to you and what that means in the world that we're talking about. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Ah, oh, boy, what a great question. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. that. That, it means a lot to me uh, as, as an American citizen, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, um, uh, I'm from uh, immigrant uh, uh, parents, like most Americans. My grandfather came to this country from Spain uh, in the um, uh, early 20th century, I think uh, 1918. Uh, he came over here to make a better life for uh, his family. So I'm, I'm, I've just always been um, um, a, a very patriotic lad, I guess. You know, I, I, I love my country. I, I, I want to serve my country. My father served our country. And I thought, you know, how, how can I 
serve my country. And I, I'm serving my country through education. That, that's my mechanism uh, to, to provide something of value to uh, uh, our, uh, our nation. And when I was a kid, um, the, uh, the moonshot, uh, when uh, the Apollo um, uh, astronauts landed on the moon, it was 1969, and I was eight years old, and I was absolutely mesmerized and filled with such awe and wonder that American ingenuity, American technology, American engineers uh, were able to achieve this um, extraordinary um, uh, event. And when Neil Armstrong uh, set foot on the moon, my heart just raced. And I knew right then I wanted to be an astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) In all honesty, I still want to be an astronaut. (laughs) I still want to be an astronaut. I'm hoping, you know, Elon Musk makes it available for uh, for uh, normal citizens. But I, I wanted to be an astronaut. I even had a little uh, ring, you know, that you get at a uh, on a um, in a, a gumball machine or something. I won this ring, and it was a one of those things where if you if you uh, move the ring, you see one image. If you move it a little bit, you see another image, and it would go back and forth uh, like this uh, picture of uh, uh, Neil Armstrong on the moon, and then his words, which still echo to me today, and they still are, are really so powerful one small step for man one giant leap for mankind and um, so you know nine-year-old kid watching this uh, uh, a moment with galvanized the nation and then uh, later i went back and and saw president kennedy's speech imploring americans to come together to find that cohesive bond that we all have as pioneers in this incredible experiment of self-determinism, freedom, justice, liberty for all. The concept that we call the United States of America uh, is really about the collective. It is, it is a grand social experiment on the power of the collective. So when I wrote that um, uh, article, or the, the, the paper that you wrote on Education's Moonshot, when I, when I um, uh, wrote that, I thought, you know, T3 has the potential to have an impact beyond what I thought it could, because this is this is a pedagogy of learning. This is a process where learners learn how to learn. And that's a very different idea than learning content or learning skills. Learning to learn, what I'm calling now meta-learning, is the ability to learn how to learn, unlearn, and relearn. That is a very empowering, capacity-building philosophy that um, is a moonshot. And if we can apply these research-based strategies with the heartfelt belief that we can help students learn how to learn, so they will not only learn for a lifetime, but inspire others to learn for a lifetime, will realize a compounding effect, which is analogous to a moonshot, to double learner academic achievement and well-being is is kind of a moonshot. It's something that's so out there, it seems impossible to to achieve. It's like this quixotic uh, uh, goal. It's like maybe 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 it's chasing windmills, but we've got to believe in the impossible dreams. We've got to seek the transcendent as as american citizens we 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 seek the unattainable and in doing so we learn so much more about ourselves and our capacity and each other but this is a collective effort it's best done as a team not as an individual 
That's pretty awesome stuff. I and mean, I, if you can, uh-huh. if you're, if you work in education and hear that and don't get fired up, I, there's something wrong with you. You need to check your pulse. <laughs> <laughs> um, to change, <laughs> to change gears just a little bit. The, the name of our podcast is "I Wish I Would Have Learned." And yeah. to take you back a little bit, uh, because uh, Mr. McCullum always likes to make fun of my uh, sci-fi ness. Uh, but time traveling a bit, if you could time travel and see yourself in high school, you're about to graduate. Um, you know, what, what is it that you wish you would have learned? What would you go back and teach yourself? Is it you, the thing you wish you would have learned in school? Boy, another great question. And it's so timely with both the name of the podcast and, and this work that, I'm, that I've been doing. I, I wish in high school I learned how to learn. I, I really didn't learn how to learn. I learned how to play the game school. I learned how to be a dutiful student. I learned how to memorize. And I learned how not to forget what I memorized until after the test. That's See, a great that's, <laughs> that's a no, that's a great answer. I mean, I, I, I you know, if I could press that button as well, I mean, there's just so many things, but life would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah, so much easier if I yeah. knew how to learn. If I knew how to optimize my learning. So and so had I done that then you know it's like that old adage. I think it was I think it was a uh, Lao Tzu who said, uh, "Give a man a fish, uh, he uh, eats for. Give a person a fish, they eat for a day. Teach a person to fish, they eat for a lifetime." Well, th- that that's a, a wonderful statement. But what does it really mean in terms of our educational systems? And I think we have a system that's still based on dependency. The learner is really dependent on the system, the institution, uh, the curriculum. Um, we, I think, have an opportunity to make us a, a nuanced change. It's not a huge wholesale change, but a subtle shift on learning to learn. Because I think meta-learning is the third millennial literacy. This is a, this is a liter. I mean, people talk about literacy and, and, and how important it is, and I agree. You know, general literacy, numerical literacy, language literacy. But I think there's even a higher literacy uh, a greater, higher order literacy, we'll call it, which I call meta-learning. And that's learning how to learn and learning how to optimize one's learning, regardless of any context that you find yourself in. So I wish when I was in high school, I knew about John Hattie's work. Because John Hattie has come up with, I think, uh, the most effective learning uh, 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 framework, the learning mo- metaphor on visible learning, is that there's a surface learning. There's the basic details, the basic facts. You've got to learn those. You've got to be able to memorize things, be able to recall and retrieve um, entry-level information. Bob Marzano calls it interacting with new knowledge. Uh, Hattie calls it surface learning. Absolute. It's really important. But too often, systems stop there, and students stop there. Had I known that there was another level, deeper learning, taking that knowledge, taking those facts, and organizing them into schema, into categories, looking at the similarities and differences between and within categories, elaborating on them, creating metaphors or analogies or similes, and then providing evidence to back up my, my assertions. And then transfer, transfer that knowledge, apply it, apply that learning in some context that's different than the context in which I've learned it. I learned that later in life, but I'm glad I did. I wish when I was in high school, I learned how to learn, I learned how to use a learning framework, and I learned the three critical stages of, of any type of human learning, surface learning, deeper learning, knowledge transfer. But it's never too late. 
<laughs> there are so many things going around in my mind right now. I, I and I appreciate your responses because they're truly making me think. And, uh, you know, I, I do appreciate that. So thank you so much. I kind of want to, I, I kind of want to, uh, piggyback into a, you know, uh, the, the main point of why we're here today. And I want to talk about your, your book, Disruptive Classroom Technologies. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, and, I, and again, I, I know that you're going to talk about the T3 model. Uh, I, I know in our district, we were using SAMR and quite frankly, I got to the point and we did a survey. We weren't moving past the substitution, but people thought we were. They thought that we were, you know, going all the way over to the redefinition, and and quite frankly, it wasn't uh, wasn't what they thought. And, and I'm glad because you know, in your book, you really kind of go through and you explain the other models, and you do obviously an excellent job. Uh, but before you before you get into the, your your book here, would you mind sharing the and I, I call it the rock and roll story? <laughs> uh, would you mind doing that for us? No, I love talking about rock and roll. You know. I, I tell people I have three great loves in my life. I'm, I'm thrice blessed, I suppose, because I, I love teaching and learning. I love rock and roll, and I love my wife crazy. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, I learned um, uh, to, to fall in love with rock and roll when I was a kid. Uh, you know, and the, the Beatles uh, um, were my world. You know, the when they when they played on Ed Sullivan's show, um, that also <laughs> had a profound impact on me. But rock and roll is an American music. It it is it is a, a national music. It's kind of the, you know, the, the pulse of America is is rock and roll to me and, and folks of my age. And uh, I I just had to learn it. I, I really wanted to learn to play guitar. I really wanted to make these sounds that I heard from uh, all these um, uh, wonderful albums from uh, Meet the Beatles to Sgt. Pepper's. So I, um, uh, I had, my dad had an old guitar and uh, kicking around an old Sears Roebuck uh, Silvertone guitar. And I um, uh, started plinking around in it. I bought a book and started learning how to play chords. I was like, hey, I can, I'm, I'm getting kind of good at this. So uh, I learned, the first song I learned was Imagine by John Lennon. So this is oh, in 1970. Wow. And I just, I loved that song. I, I, I was so inspired by that song and what it meant and it just meant so much to me personally that I had to render it I had to kind of figure out how to do it so I learned the chords and learned how to put my fingers in certain ways and and uh, uh, play that song and then I realized that well once I learned that song I could learn other songs in the same key and then I learned how to uh, play in different keys and I learned the the basis of rock and roll the simplest thing rock and roll is such a very simple music it's the first chord in a scale the fourth chord in a scale and the fifth chord in the scale, one, four, five. And that, that was like a, a, a pattern that unlocked a, a treasure trove of music for me. And so I was sitting around, you know, uh, with my friends and learning how to play songs that we heard on the radio. And I was playing Beatles songs and Eagles songs and John Denver and in particular Country Roads, which was my mom's favorite song of mine that I played. So I played Country Roads probably thousands of times. And then in 1977, uh, I heard a sound that just absolutely rocked my world. It was 90 seconds. And that 90 second sound was Eruption <laughs> by uh, Van Halen in their, in their uh, title uh, uh, album, Van Halen One. And Eddie Van Halen was able to make music with a, in a way that just was like a, a kick to the head. I'd never experienced anything like it and I was just blown away. And so I went and bought Van Halen one and became a devotee. I became a Van Halen disciple. I, I, I thought Eddie's 
uh, uh, musicianship was was nothing short of, of, of virtuoso. I'd never heard anything like it, and, and I thought, oh my God, I don't know what that is, but I want more. And uh, I grew up in, in South Jersey in the Delaware Valley, and we had a, a radio station there. Eddie was a, a guest on the show. It was John DeBella in the morning at WMMR, and uh, uh, this was, again, 1976-ish, uh, and um, the DJ, Don, John DeBella, was having a great conversation with Van Halen. They were going to play at the Spectrum in Philly that night, and he said, do you have any advice for budding guitarists in the Delaware Valley? And I'll never forget what Eddie said next. He said, yes, I do. Kids, this is your Uncle Eddie speaking. If you're out there and you're playing your guitar and you're listening to songs on the radio and you're performing them on your on your guitar uh, around the campfire keep doing that that's good for you but if you want to get better you've got to know that you're in a stage you're in a stage that i call the campfire stage because you're sitting around singing around the campfire singing songs you're having a good time keep doing that but there's another stage that every great guitarist has got to go through he said i call that the chuck berry stage you got to rock out like Chuck. You got to play like Chuck Berry. You got to learn all those riffs, all those great rock and roll riffs. You, every great guitarist, goes through that stage, large, which I call the Chuck Berry stage. You got to get through that in order to get to the third phase, where you're creating your own innovative music. You're expressing yourself. You're expressing your emotional intent, uh, your your ideas in a way that's all your own. So Eddie gave to me, and he didn't know it, but he gave me a guitar playing framework and I was 14 years old that just it stuck with me and it actually does um, follow Hattie's model of surface learning deeper learning knowledge transfer because at first you have to imitate what you know surface learning is, is a lot like imitation deeper learning is when you go deeper into something that's hard it's challenging and it's the hard part that makes it great but then you've got to take what you've learned and and not just transform it, but transcend what already exists and do your own thing. And so when I uh, uh, looked at all my data on student learning with technology and, I, and I, I categorized them, I found three distinct categories. And which, so the T3 framework was absolutely inspired by Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing framework. So there are three phases to learning with technology. And the T3 stands for translational transformational and transcendent t1 is translational learning and that's where we use technology for really to automate tasks or to access content and consume information which is necessary i mean if you're doing that keep doing that if teachers are using technology to uh, to save time uh, to improve efficiency uh, and to reduce errors or to, to consume content information good keep doing that but if you want to get better you got you got to know you're in a stage you're in the T1 translational stage. And in order to get better, you got to get to the next stage, which is the, the Chuck Berry stage of learning with technology, transformational learning. And that means putting students at the center of the experience, having students involved not just in consuming information, consuming knowledge, but producing knowledge representations, establishing their own uh, learning goals, their, their, their personal mastery goals, tracking and monitoring their mastery goals producing something that represents their understanding that shows their voice, their unique way of looking at things, and then contributing to the learning of others. That's transformational. And that's in the T2 domain. When students are, are transformed, in essence, they become teachers. 
they become their own teachers. It's a concept I call the, the learning sensei. And every human has within them their own inner learning sensei, where they become their own teacher. They learn how to learn to the point where they teach themselves anything. But then you got to go through the next stage. What I call transcendent uh, learning with technology is applying that knowledge to make the world a better place, to identify, investigate, and hypothesize solutions to wicked problems that matter to them. And that, in a nutshell, is the T3 framework. It's, it's born of rock and roll. Uh, and <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a great allegory. It's great. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, yeah, that was awesome. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I did have a, a question for you. So we talked earlier, we asked about, you know, if I'm a new teacher to technology, you know, what should I be thinking? What would advice would you give me? So on and so forth. Um, we, we do have quite a few of those, but we, we have been in this journey in education uh, to uh, implementing technology, using it as a tool to help deepen learning. We, we've been going through that journey. And because of that, we've got quite a few teachers at different levels of implementation. And so uh, looking at it a little bit differently, what advice or what, um, what would you say to a teacher who has moved quite far ahead um, because I know a, a concept in your in your book was uh, you know continuous personal growth and being yeah. deeply reflect reflective. Uh, so, what guidance would you have for someone who has moved quite a bit, but you know obviously there's always m more steps to take. Yeah, uh, and there are a lot of teachers that uh, are are doing great things with with technology. Uh, the question is, to what extent are students involved in planning for their own learning, um, expressing and representing their knowledge, and then actively self evaluating? The things that we do as teachers, what we know as pedagogy, actually work very, very well as learning strategies or learning habits. So what I would ask teachers to do is uh, learn about uh, these learning strategies and ask yourself, okay, to what extent am I helping build capacity for continuous, lifelong, limitless learning? And to what extent am I... Uh, uh, helping kids become more dependent, dependent on me, the teacher, to learn what to learn, to assess how well they're learning it, and to determine their um, uh, their ability to express themselves. So it, it, as much as, as one can, turn the keys of learning to the students. Get Put them in the driver's seat and shift your role from I, it, it's been said before, but, it, but and it, it, I don't think it's tried at all. Uh, it's very true. Instead of being a sage on the stage, be a guide on the side. Instead of being the one to transmit knowledge and that it's our responsibility to uh, uh, ensure that uh, we're transmitting information from our heads and the students' heads, and rather shift to a facilitation role. And what extent are you facilitating students' capacity to become meta-learners? And so it's really a question. Are, are, are students becoming meta-learners or are they becoming uh, a pro proficient at content knowledge um, resuscita uh, uh, recitation? Yeah, like, we, like what you said earlier. I mean, like uh, memorizing, regurgitating, and then quietly forgetting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, hey, uh, another topic from your book uh, was something that just – once I read it, I was instantly interested to learn more, um, was the concept of social entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I was hoping that you might want to take a moment just to uh, sure. kind of explain a little bit of what that is and why it's so important. Yeah, sure. Happy to. And thank you for that. Um, social entrepreneurship is an interesting term 
to me, it's a mashup of social justice and entrepreneurship. When I was younger, uh, the the general thinking at the time, and what I was told, uh, and what I learned was that, you know, in fact, I, I think it was even at, a, at a, a, a counselor that said, look, you can either do good in the world or you can make money. And I, I reject that. It's a, it's a false <laughs> dichotomy. It's, it's, it's possible, I think, to uh, uh, do good in the world and be financially responsible. Uh, they're not opposing ideas. So social entrepreneurs are those that uh, are trying to improve the world around them and doing so in a way that is financially sustainable. So it's really about sustainability. Social entrepreneurship is about sustainability. So um, uh, I'll give you some examples. And one of the examples in the book, I'm still, you know, uh, uh, enamored with. Um, there was a student who was a um, 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 wanted to learn uh, um, French conjugates. I think it was uh, he was studying for his uh, uh, AP examination in French. And this kid was able to code. He had some coding skills. He had some uh, software background. So he built this little game for himself that were flashcards to help him memorize um, uh, challenging French irregular verbs. And he shared it with some friends. And and a friend said, you know, I could really use that for my AP geometry class. So he kept building and developing and putting this together. And he wanted to help learners learn. Well, that kid was Andrew Sutherland. The company is Quizlet that he formed. And it was based on this idea that that he wanted to learn how he learned best and, how, and to help himself and use technology to aid in that process. So now Quizlet is a multi-million dollar company that's doing socially good stuff. They're helping learners learn, but they're also financially solvent. And that's just one example. I, I really... Uh, encourage teachers to look at the sustainable development goals uh, from the United Nations. They, these are uh, uh, the globalgoals.org. If you go, people go to that website because the UNESCO, the United Nations, have identified 17 domains of wicked problems. And when kids explore wicked problems that matter to them, with the mindset that they can do something about it, they can solve those problems. Several things happen. Number one, a child's passion pilot light gets lit. And when a learner's passion pilot light gets lit, it will never go out. That inspiration is what will drive learners to make an impact and make their world better. In social entrepreneurship, the idea is to have students first identify a wicked problem that matters to them. Investigate it. Take the time to learn about the problem. Learn about the implications of that problem. What makes the problem the problem? What is the constraint? Where have solutions been attempted? What's worked? What hasn't worked? What can be improved upon? That's a really rich area for student imagination to flourish. And that is, I think, one of the most powerful forces in the universe is imagination. Human imagination is the start of every invention or innovation. And really, by definition, imagination has, there are no known limits to human imagination. So let our students imagine solutions to wicked problems that matter to them and use the guidance provided in the T3 framework to give a a step-by-step sequential process for students to engage in um, problem identification, 
investigation and hypothesization, and then beta test their solutions in a way that is time honored and sustainable. That's that that is that's really the essence of it is to is to you know in, empower students to become leaders for social justice, equitable change uh, in the world to make the world a better place. So, Dr. Magana, looking at your T three framework, it has an incredible growth <laughs> in it. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because you know, in a couple mm-hmm. previous conversations, yeah. you know, and uh, I'm, I'm using, I hopefully I'm using it the right way. It's almost mm. too good to be true. And yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, looking at the potential there is just amazing. And when you answer, can you kind of frame it where we're at with the? Uh, mid-COVID and post-COVID, what that could do for intervention and also accelerating learning? Oh, boy, that's another great question. You know, we're, we're in uh, probably the, the, the most challenging time ever experienced by educators, leaders, and, and uh, students. Um, the uh, the findings are uh, on the pen, what I'm calling the pandemic slide effect. Um, in fact, I didn't make up the term. Uh, it was, I think it was when the McKinsey report came out with a, um, a research study recently that suggested students are uh, between 10 months and a year behind in their academic achievement because of the COVID uh, global pandemic. So we, we're all familiar with the summer slide where students' uh, academic performance slides back a little bit uh, because of uh, the, the months they have off, June, July, and August. What we're now in the midst of is a pandemic slide effect, which is just accelerating. It's getting deeper and students are falling further and further behind and having a harder and harder time catching up. If we continue to do uh, business as usual and just take um, the tell and practice model of instruction and apply it to uh, a Zoom or Google Meet or some other video conference, we're really still engaged in a kind of a translational approach. However, if we embrace the findings from uh, the T3 framework and and move from a translational approach to learning to a transformational approach to learning, here's what will happen. The findings in, from the T3 strategies are really, they're, they're quite pronounced. The effect size that we observe, and this is, I, this is work that I did with Robert Marzano, who's you know, uh, uh, is, uh, above reproach. His, his uh, reputation is, is uh, um, uh, kind of the, the stuff of legend, really. And he's just one of the nicest, uh, kindest people you'll ever meet. So when we did this work together, we saw effect sizes that were that were extraordinarily large. 1.6 is what we uh, what I published in the book. But we saw effect sizes that were even higher. Now, as researchers, we tend to, to be conservative and kind of uh, uh, be, well, let's say we were just conservative. But a, an effect size of 1.6 let me explain what that means. If students engage in the habits and the strategies in the T2 domain, the two elements that I call production and contribution, that has an effect of equivalent to quadrupling student learning. 1.6 is effect size is, to give you a comparison, that is like a child learning four years of content in a single academic year. That's extraordinary. It does seem too good to be true, and yet, the research was peer-reviewed and vetted, and it's now in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia. So it is highly reliable. What it means, I think, for our nation right now in this, ter- in this challenging time is if teachers and students engage in these T2 strategies in an online or hybrid format, learning will not slide. 
students will not be um, uh, uh, they won't regress. In fact, the opposite will happen. We can, I think, mitigate the pandemic slide and reverse it and have a V-shaped recovery, not a K-shaped or U-shaped yeah. recovery, a V-shaped recovery where we stop sliding down, students build these capacities and they have a compounding effect. And when learners are involved in what I call contributive learning, which is a new theory, really, contributive learning is kind of learning where students are learning not just for their own benefit themselves but for, for the benefit of each other and they're engaged in a collective approach to learning i think we will have a pronounced acceleration in student learning and i hope that that when if this happens as, as i i'm working every day to, to make this happen um when this global pandemic is over because it will end we, we will have a cessation of this infection medical science and technology will get a handle on this and we will come back to a new reality i hope that we come back to that new reality uh, schools have embraced this research-based approach to learning to the degree that we will be completely transformed and we move away from place-based learning and seat time-based learning and examination-driven learning because that's what our system is generally speaking right now learning happens in a place called the school, a place called the classroom. It's based on 180 hours of learning per child, per, per uh, academic subject per year, and it's assessed by some examination driven. If we shift that to a distributed learning model where students become meta-learners and learn how to learn, they learn how to optimize their learning, they learn anywhere, they learn everywhere, the learning is mastery-based, not just minimum proficiency, not just adequacy, but mastery-based, where students learn how to, how to engage in mastery learning strategies. And the learning becomes self-directed. That could be an entirely different world, uh, a, a, a student-directed, mastery-based, everywhere-based learning experience. And I, I believe in my heart that we can do it, but it's gonna take time. And I, I believe in the slow roll, <laughs> you know, you do a little bit at a time, but then over, over time we'll uh, build momentum. And I think we have the potential in these, in this country and, and really in, in the rest of the world uh, to um, help students learn how to learn collectively and contributively. And the world will be a far better place when we get back to the new normal, which we will. You're 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 speaking my language right now with the pandemic and the learning gaps that we're seeing, um, the having the power of something that's been you know peer reviewed and seen to have that kind of impact. It's just it's a powerful thing because like I said earlier, we're we got in this profession to help kids and they are in this is this is the greatest need that I think that we've experienced in our generation. This is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, this is it. To to change gears just a little bit um, and to ask a more uh, personal question. Um, we talked about uh, your past as a, an author and as an educator and e even your uh, short goals for being an astronaut. <laughs> but uh, if uh, you could go back in time and uh, you could choose any other profession that you haven't pursued in your life, what, 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 would you, what would you be? 
I would be Eddie Van Halen's guitar tech. <laughs> <laughs> no hesitation there. I would, I would be his guitar tech, and I would want to learn as much as I could from that uh, uh, musical virtuoso. I, I, I would have been a rock star. I, I, I love playing music. I love uh, making music. I still, I still do. I mean, I, I have a little band uh, uh, that uh, we're called the Bad Pennies. Because we just keep showing up, we just show up and play, <laughs> and uh, just straight up a good old-fashioned rock and roll. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, if I if I wouldn't have been a, a teacher, if I if I hadn't heard the calling, if I hadn't heeded the calling, and you said something very very important, uh, Isaac. And I'm not sure if it's Isaac or Robert, but um, you both believe this. Teaching is a calling. We don't do this. To, we don't do this for personal glory or or financial reward. Teaching is a calling, and those that heed that call. Uh, are standing on the shoulders of incredible human beings who who have kept our species um, uh, uh, sustained. We've sustained our species. You know, every teacher is standing on the shoulder of teachers who inspired them to become teachers. When you heed that call, uh, your life becomes uh, a, a joy. Uh, being being of service to uh, to humanity, being of service to others uh, in teaching, is it's just the noblest calling. So if I if I probably would have been a guitar teacher, <laughs> maybe. that's awesome. I know. So uh, any other I, uh, any other instruments other than guitar, or you just play guitar? No, no, I I play guitar. I, I play uh, bass, a little keyboard, um, and uh, uh, sing and write and and compose music. And I just I love it. It's something I do every day. In fact, it, it's kind of therapy. I tell people, you know, when I when I um, am struggling uh, through to uh, with with, a, with something that's challenging, whether it's with work or you know with some research or, or a bit of writing, if I'm challenged, um, I I have to pick up my guitar, just like uh, the Who's. I pick up my guitar and play, <laughs> just like yesterday, and it changes my mindset. It changes my consciousness. <clears throat> so after I just gotta rock out, you know, I, I've got I gotta start playing and rocking out, and then I come back to the problem that I left and I just don't see it in the same way anymore. I change my consciousness a little bit and eight times out of 10, I solve the problem right then and there. Dr. Magana, this has been an amazing experience <laughs> and I appreciate you so much. I appreciate uh, your leadership, uh, your research. I know it's gonna have an impact on us individually and most importantly, our kids. So this has been just a, an incredible conversation. I do want to say, uh, with all sincerity, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you giving us your time and spending, you know, and again, I just looked at the clock. My uh, uh, my tech guy just flashed 5-5 five, five at me. We've been talking almost an hour, and it oh, just gosh, it just yeah. seems like two minutes, and there's so many other <laughs> questions i just love to ask you. But, I, I, I again, I, I just want to thank you very, very much. Uh, I also it's appreciate it. This is Isaac, and I really appreciate uh, our, our conversation. Uh, you blew my mind. I feel like that kid in that comic strip. Like, can I leave now? My head is full. <laughs> <laughs> I love that far side, guys. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Robert and Isaac, thank you very much. It's a privilege. It really is to uh, to be of service. And so thank you for giving me an opportunity to share my ideas and, and to share this work. And I'm, I'm so excited to work with the Hesperia School District. So um, thank you very much. It really was a pleasure talking with you. Have a great afternoon, sir. You too. Now, thanks, Isaac. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye.